Good evening. We begin tonight with a startling story which says there was a conspiracy to kill Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and tells us the killer was not James Earl Ray after all. Mr. Jowers, did James Earl Ray kill Dr. Martin Luther King? No, sir, he did not. Do you know who killed Dr. King? I know who was paid to do it. Lloyd Jowers, a 67-year-old Memphis businessman who wants his face partially shadowed because he says he fears for his safety, insists he has a shocking story to tell. Was there a conspiracy involving more than one person? There was a conspiracy, yes, sir. Sure was. Were you involved in this conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King, Jr.? I was involved in it indirectly. The new story is that the shot was fired from somewhere down below perhaps as close as that row of bushes just above the wall, and not fired by James Earl Ray, but instead by a new shooter that Jowers had been asked to hire. According to Jowers, the man who asked him to help in the killing of Dr. King was a now-deceased Memphis produce dealer named Frank Liberto. Liberto done me himself a large favor, so I owed him a favor. Or at least I thought I did. Did there come a time when he came and asked you to repay that favor? Yes, sir. And was it a large favor he wanted in return? Yes, sir. What did Frank Liberto ask you to do? He asked me to handle uh, the money transactions, hire someone to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. To kill Dr. King? Yes, sir. The murder of Martin Luther King, Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shot that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? Welcome back to the Crux. Remember, Ray pled guilty. In his eventual trial in March of 1969, Ray pleads guilty. Now, he retracts that plea almost immediately, after three days, and he insists that he'd been suckered into being a fall guy for a conspiracy. But of course, that doesn't count. You can't say, oh, hey, my B, I'm really innocent. Let's have a do-over now, three days after I just pled guilty. So the whole saga of James Earl Ray's guilt or innocence was strange off the rip. But starting with the plea itself, not the retraction of the plea, as strange as that was. No, the guilty plea itself, which Ray said he made under duress, that his lawyer coerced him into making, it was qualified by Ray. He included this this weird caveat. When asked by the judge if he was guilty of murder in the first degree, he says, quote, yes, legally, yes. What does that mean? What does that distinction mean? I'm legally guilty. Does that mean you're not actually guilty? It's really strange that that caveat or that that distinction he wants to make. He wants to make it publicly, and he wants to make it in front of the judge. I'm legally guilty. And that was curious enough to give folks pause, or at least people who wondered early on about a conspiracy and, and a cover-up. But then, Ray just straight interrupts the proceedings. 
to mention FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. He just kind of stuns everybody, all of a sudden, blurting out something about not agreeing with Hoover and the Attorney General. And Ray doesn't get much of a chance to explain himself. The court sort of shuts him down. But this unplanned interjection is taken to mean that, that he didn't agree with Hoover and the Attorney General's public denials of conspiracy. They had been in the press sort of repeatedly, you know, reassuring the, the public that there wasn't a conspiracy. And he wanted to disagree with that. The next day, the New York Times publishes this huge editorial, scathing editorial, called Tongue Tied Justice. And they say, quote, The aborted trial of James Earl Ray for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a shocking breach of faith with the American people, black and white. Nothing but outrage and suspicion can follow the handling of this long-delayed and instantly snuffed-out trial. The question still cries for an answer. Was there a conspiracy to kill Dr. King, and who was in it? But as of that morning of March 10th, 1969, Ray is a convicted murderer. And so his claims of being manipulated by conspirators, that's just Ray's word. Just like the state couldn't match Ray's gun with the bullet that killed King, so too does Ray not have that that central piece of evidence that he could present to make his case. Neither side has anything approaching a smoking gun level of evidence. And yet Ray was increasingly believed by King's folks. In fact, when Ray was later married in prison in 1978, it was performed by Reverend James Lawson. This is the black Memphis preacher and civil rights activist that brought Dr. King to Memphis in 1968. Jesse Jackson went to meet with Ray. Hosea Williams went to meet with Ray. Then eventually the King family went to meet with Ray. But again, everybody was taking Ray at his word. Which, of course, with with this mounting circumstantial evidence, convinced them of his innocence. But, But they were always waiting for someone to say something. Someone in the conspiracy or close to the conspiracy. Maybe someone approaching death or or someone for whom that, that moral weight of silence had grown too heavy. Someone in the conspiracy would eventually talk, right? And then, all of a sudden, more than two decades after the assassination, Lloyd Jower steps out and he says he'll talk. He took the gun from the shooter, he says. And he's prepared to say who that was. He's prepared to say who the money man was. The shooter takes the shot, passes, jowers the gun. Jowers breaks it down, tucks it away to be picked up later by like a, by like a cleanup guy. And then Ray's rifle, that is the one with Ray's prints on it, is then dumped onto Main Street to be found by the cops. And though that rifle, that .30-06, can't be connected to King's killing, listen, it's got Ray's prints on it. It's right out in front of Knipes, right there on Main Street. It's wrapped in a bundle, and it looks wild and criminatory. Especially when you have someone upstairs in the boarding house who says they saw Ray leaving the bathroom right after this loud gunshot. And now that's Charlie Stevens, so we know that that's just hella problematic. 
But they do say at least they have a witness. And so the assassination scheme really starts to take shape. Someone fires the shot from the brush, passes the weapon to Jowers. They escape. And then they have the gun with Ray's prints on it dumped on the main street to be found. And then the feds say that they have this guy, Charlie Stevens, who says he saw Ray upstairs right after the shot. Boom, boom. There you go. But here's the question. How does Ray get steered to be in the boarding house across the street from the Lorraine on April 4th with a rifle, with his prints on that rifle? How do you get the Patsy into position, into the trap without him suspecting anything? Well, you need some sort of handler, someone tasked with with getting the Patsy into place to be the fall guy. You have to have someone or some some ones to get that guy into place so you can get the shooting pinned on him. And this brings us to Raul, easily the most shadowy and mysterious character in all of this. Raul is is at once in the center of everything and always in the shadows. Everything hinges on Raul. This is the man that you knew as Raul. These were all aliases, though. I assume. This is the man who pulled the strings, get the password. Yeah. And you don't think Raul was a real name at all, then? This is the man who pulled the strings, get the password. Yeah, I was promised a passport the first trip across the border. And he seemed to be working out of New Orleans. This, this is the man. Another man came to see him. Another man whose name sounded something like Raul. So who is this Raul? Well, first we've got to rewind. Back to when Ray breaks out of prison. And we've got to follow Ray into the seedy bars of the waterfront of Montreal, down by the docks. This is where the story of Ray and Raul begins. Now, Raul has never been found. So we have to understand that this is just Ray's account and is, in the end, unverifiable, at least without the emergence of of Raoul to affirm it. But let's go back to the morning of April 23rd, 1967. You can sort of imagine Ray dusting the, the breadcrumbs off of himself on the side of the road after the bread box escape. In the prison truck, you know, is rumbling off down the road, unaware. And Ray starts making his way toward Chicago. Now, he works a straight job in Chicago for a while. Like seven weeks in a row. Some of the longest work he ever did, like straight work, like actual work for a paycheck. Almost two months of honest work from the son of a guy who swore off straight work when James was like just a kid. James was even said to be this really good worker. They really liked him. He was quiet, got along, great worker. But do not get it twisted. This was not James trying to make good and and turn his life around. This was only a means to an end, this, this kitchen work. Probably to make a little money, keep a low pro, 
while the heat died down. And then he's very suddenly off to Montreal. But not the picturesque, nice part of Montreal. Not the stuff of postcards. No, this is James Earl Ray. Ray heads for the weird, seedy part of Montreal and begins to frequent this bar called the Neptune. In the Neptune and, and all along the waterfront, Ray had put the word out that he was looking for traveling papers, like a Canadian passport and, and whatever else he'd need to leave North America for good. Get on a boat and just sayonara. He was also looking for someone who could vouch for him. He was convinced that this was another way to get papers. If, if you had another Canadian, like, verify you, like, vouch for you, you could... You were good. And he was, he was mostly mistaken on this, but he met a woman and, and tried to woo her. He, it's, it's actually kind of a sweet story, really, to be honest. But once he found out that she worked for the Canadian government, he backed off. So I've covered this a little bit in a previous episode, but this desire of Ray's to expatriate goes back to at least the fifties <laughs> and expatriate is probably too, too grand a word. It's get the hell away from the cops and the justice system. Just get away. Ray had considered living in Mexico for a while, South America. He actually lived in a, in a little town in Mexico for a short time in 1967, but probably about a month, month and a half. Right after he had broken out of prison. Sounds like he dealt like a, a middling amount of marijuana. Seemed to have had a, a decent enough time. He even considered trading his Mustang for a little land down there after somebody offered that. But he didn't, and he came back to the States. But getting away from the continent, that was the big prize, it seems like. And when I say the continent, I mean like the Americas. The, the large landmass of North and South America. He wanted to put an ocean between him and the law. Whenever he was like in a coastal or a port city, seems like he was always looking into becoming a merchant seaman or, or joining the merchant marines. Mexico, in the end, wasn't far enough away, nor was Canada. But getting on a boat and like shoving off for the rest of the world, then he'd be safe. That seems to be his long-term thinking. If I can speculate here a bit... I wonder how much Ray wanted to start over in almost like an existential way. He'd say that he wanted to get away from the U.S., to get a world away from the legal system that hounded him and hounded his father and his brothers and his uncle. They'd all spent so much time either locked in prison cells or, or on the run from the law. Not that they were innocent, far, far from it. But they did live as, as outlaws, as outcasts, apart from the rest of the world. His family were criminal outcasts going back at least as far as his great-grandfather, Ned Ray, who was hung for being part of the infamous plumber gang in the mid-1800s. These, like, country-ass crips that were just wildin' out west. The plumber gang had a body count of at least a hundred, which for back then, I mean, there wasn't nobody out there. You had to work hard to rack up a hundred bodies. 
And his son, Ray's grandfather, was a bootlegger. Ray's dad was worthless, as we've covered. And his dad's brother was, I guess you'd have to say, like, criminally insane. His rap sheet started when he was 10 years old. That's when he was first dragged into a courtroom. He was institutionalized at 11. And far as I can tell, the only real job he ever had was as a carnival boxer. Which, not it's not even real work. I don't even know exactly what a carnival boxer is. And he spent the bulk of his life in prison. And most everybody was happy about that. They didn't like him, and, and in fact, they were scared of him. And James's family, too, were just, just outcasts, dirt poor, often hungry and unable to be even known by their real names, if they were known at all. And in fact, the only time they were really ever welcomed into any society was around the time that Ray flunked the first grade. While his dad was stuck in the law, if you remember. James's little sister, Marjorie, had gotten into a bag of groceries that Ray's mom, probably drunk, had brought home and left on the back porch. And little Marjorie, only six years old, found a box of matches in the bag. Author Gerald Posner describes what happens next. He writes, A moment later, the family heard piercing screams and saw Marjorie run into the house, her dress in flames, the fire enveloping her head. She was dead by the next morning. In the little town that, that Ray's family shack was near to, they took sympathy for a short time for the Rays, but, but that was only temporary. And the Rays themselves only got more dark, more turned inward, more drunk. Pretty soon, Ray's father was using the house itself for firewood until there was virtually nothing left. But so I feel like Ray wanted to change himself in a more fundamental way, to be in a new place as a new person. Ray was a, was a loner, and I wonder how much he felt trapped in himself, kept from everyone else. It, it seems like he was going through something in those months after he broke out of prison in 1967. He gets plastic surgery in L.A. during this time. It's weird. He takes dancing lessons by himself. And he transforms what sounds to be incredibly wooden and stiff clumsiness into something passable. He wasn't built for dancing. That much was clear. But he wanted to learn. Dancing is where you meet people. I mean, it takes two to tango. And he's just one. He's, he's trying. I mean, the lessons in L.A. weren't the only time he'd tried to learn to dance. I mean, it appears that he really worked hard at it, which is kind of sad because what it sounds like is he was a real shitty dancer. He was never going to be good, never going to be natural. But he, but he was trying. He joined what was called a Lonely Hearts Club to meet women which sounded wild depressing. 
and, and not at all like Sergeant Pepper's organization. He went to bartending school while in L.A. He graduated there. And then there was the weirder stuff. He started going to hypnotists, got really into hypnotism and being hypnotized. And then he started buying books, quite a good many books, about what was called psycho-cybernetics by this guy, Dr. Maxwell Maltz. You might want to put doctor in scare quotes there. 90% of the men and women alive today have an image of themselves as distorted as the reflection in a fun house mirror. Since they see themselves as distorted and warped, they act that way. The first and basic truth of cybernetics, the one you must learn in order to unlock the door to a better life, is image is all. My friend Salvador Dali, the famous Spanish painter, gave me a painting of his concept of psychocybernetics. In the center of this painting is a world divided in two parts. The left is a world in shadow from frustration. Here you have man's image shrunken to the size of a small potato, moving away from reality from the world towards the black angel of destruction. It might be safe to say that Ray was always running from, never running to. He didn't have a place to go. And you can never get away from yourself. You can run, but you're, you're always there. But Ray had put the word out in Montreal on the waterfront that he wanted to get away, far away, and for good. Ray doesn't know exactly how Raoul found him. Only that Ray had put out feelers in this sort of semi-underworld of the docks and the bars along the waterfront. And Raoul presented himself in the services. I like to think of this waterfront area during that time as something like season two of The Wire, even though I've never been to Montreal and I've never been to the docks of Baltimore. I just feel like it's where international trade and travel meet a like local underworld and you just get some some nastiness. Like, there's going to be some crime. The mob's probably going to be involved. Or at least some, like, local analog. There are going to be bosses. There's going to be violence. There's going to be prostitution and drugs. Like, this was part of the character of the docks of Montreal in 1968. And Ray is pretty comfortable in these sorts of situations. And, and he knows... Pretty well, it sounds like, how to navigate these areas and, you know, put the word out. Ray knows how to move in those sorts of environments. He had put the word out that he needed a new identity to travel and to get away. And Raul sort of emerges. And this Raul says, hey, I got you. Do some work for me and I can hook you up. 
I can get you a new identity, new papers, all that. You'll be good to go. And there's going to be some money. But first, do this one little job for me. I need you to bring some stuff across the border. It's going to pay good. Do this one little job and then we can talk some more. Now, Ray is also short on money at this point. So this sounds great. He'd robbed a pimp in Montreal to get some cash a little while ago. He had resorted to robbing pimps. But he couldn't keep doing shit like that. And here Raul is is proffering this, like, easy money, it sounds like. What, you, you just drive across the border? Drive back into the States? With a little package, drop it off, come back. And Ray had always been a smuggler. Is In prison, it's believed that he was moving a pretty decent amount of narcotics. Mostly amphetamines. He smuggled shit when he was in the army in Germany after the war. He even bought booze on weekdays to sell at a markup to the winos on Sundays back in Missouri. Which is, I guess, a sort of smuggling. Moving and selling illicit goods was like a pretty comfortable hustle for Ray. And while there wasn't much money in selling like booze to drunks when the liquor stores were closed... There was real money to be made moving packages across the border into Detroit for this Raul guy. So Ray makes a couple of runs for this guy. He'd stuff the packages down into the seats of his car, like lifting the headrest up and then shoving these these wrapped packages. He didn't know what it was down into the seats like where the springs are. He'd make his run into the United States, pass the product on to Raul on the Detroit side of the border come back to Canada, get paid, rinse and repeat. It was easy money. Now, this might sound unbelievable to you. It did to me because it's impossible to imagine Canada being so grimy. Canada is like, so it's Canada is cuddly. The cops are, I don't know, prancing around on horses or whatever. It's the land of Drake. Canada's so nice, but but no, folks were moving real weight through Canada back in the day. See, Montreal is a major port city, and in many ways, it's a, it's a French city. It's sort of the, the westernmost French city. And in the 60s, the so-called French Connection was this vast three-continent global supply chain run by the French mob, where Turkish-grown opium goes to France, Marseille specifically, this Mediterranean port city. It gets processed, then sent to Canada, where it made its way into the U.S. During that era, the vast majority of the heroin coming into the U.S. was being processed by the mob in France. And Montreal is the closest North American port city to France. So the heroin that killed your favorite musician from that era almost certainly came through the French Connection. And Montreal was a pretty damn good place to bring it in. It comes into Montreal, goes to Toronto, to Detroit, and boom. There's your way into the American Midwest. So Ray doesn't say, he never knows what he was moving, but I'd assume that this is what he was bringing across the border into Detroit. And Ray is stacking good money from his work for Raul. Or so he says. 
And he's waiting for what Raul or the people that Raul represents promises. Fully legit papers under a whole new identity that are, in essence, a free pass away from the U.S. authorities. What he'd been trying to get for years. Decades, even. When Ray broke out of prison, he still owed like 18 years on his sentence. And breaking out and running around committing even more crimes was only going to add more years. So Raul promises an escape plus like really, really good money in the meantime, which Ray, of course, also needs. You can't expatriate without money. Now, there's speculation encouraged by by some of what Ray has said that Raul is a name for multiple people, multiple contacts, representing a, a, a dark web, some sort of group, probably mafia. If you remember from the beginning of the episode, there's a reference to a guy, Frank Liberto, believed to have ties to the mafia in New Orleans, the notorious Marcello crime family. Liberto is said to be the money man for the job in Memphis. A local grocer who, who bought produce from Liberto's warehouse, this guy John McFerrin, a black guy, went to the FBI a few days after the assassination to inform them that he'd been in Liberto's on the afternoon of the shooting, around 5 p.m. And he hears Liberto on the phone. He's back by the office. And he hears Liberto say, I told you not to call me here. Shoot the son of a bitch when he comes on the balcony. And then McFerrin heard something about $5,000 to be, to be picked up from his brother in New Orleans. And now the House Assassination Committee did find some manner of relationship between Frank Liberto's brother, Salvatore, and the Marcello family in New Orleans. We should probably quickly note here that that contracting work out to the mob wasn't unheard of back then. Declassified documents reveal that the CIA contracted the mafia on at least one of its many assassination attempts against Castro in, in Cuba in the 60s. So it's not like the darker parts of the of the U.S. government were, you know, opposed to contracting out their dirty work to the darker parts of society. The CIA, at least, didn't and doesn't go around looking for Boy Scouts. Whether it's the, 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 the Mujahideen in Afghanistan back in the 80s, the folks that became the Taliban in Al-Qaeda, or, or General Pinochet in Chile, the CIA is interested in advancing their directives. They simply don't care about the virtue of, of those they associate with. So it's not out of the question that the mafia could could become involved in, in, in some dirty shit. So maybe Raul is mafia. Maybe he's French connection. Maybe he's government. Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe he's one guy. Maybe he's multiple guys. Raul is strange. But after doing some work for Raul across the Canadian border, 
Ray is told to report to the southern U.S. to do some trafficking across the Mexican border. Still some drugs, but mostly now gun running. There's going to be more money. He's getting paid well. But Ray is starting to get a little antsy now. Where are these documents you promised? You promised me a new ID. All the papers I needed to get the fuck out of here. Where are those? But again, he's also making really good money with Raul, which he also needs. And Raul says, hey, chill, I got you. After these few runs across the Mexican border, you'll get your papers. Just give me, give me a little time. So Raul instructs Ray to purchase a military-grade rifle in Alabama that, that Raul can show in mint condition to the buyers. It's like a display item. Like, this is, this is what we got. This is what I can get for you. To show the product before the transaction is commenced. To prove he's not bullshitting. But Ray is not a hunter. In his army days, long behind him, were non-combat duty in occupied Germany after the Second World War, where also he was discharged for what the assassination committee referred to as ineptness. So Ray buys the wrong gun from this Alabama gun store. And then Raul tells him, no, 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 I, I, I need this very specific gun. It's a 30-06 Game Master. That's what we need. And so Ray goes back and gets that. And Ray and Raul plan to meet back up in Memphis a few days later. That's where Raul is going to be meeting with these representatives of the Mexican buyers. So Ray arrives in Memphis on April 3rd and, and passes the gun off to Raul, who is to meet with the Mexicans the next day, April 4th. And Ray and Raul plan to meet up afterwards. But that never happens. And at 6.07, six minutes after the shot, a Memphis cop finds the gun that Ray had just bought for Raul, wrapped in a bundle and tossed against the doorway of Knipes. It's got Ray's prints all over it. Ray is fucked. The number one question is can the number one question is can the best stick up the number one question is can the number one question is can the best stick up the number one question is can the number one question is can the best stick up the number one question is can the number one question is can the best stick up the number one question is can the number one question is can the best Can the best?